This show was produced by and first broadcast on Radio Kidnappers, Hawke's Bay's community access radio station. Thanks to New Zealand On Air for enabling us to put Hawke's Bay voices on air. Good afternoon and welcome to Starry Nights. Starry Nights is a program about astronomy, what there is to see in the night sky, and how it may have got there. We'll explore some of the myths and legends associated with objects in the evening sky, and we'll examine some of the technologies that are helping us to unravel the mysteries of the universe. My name is Gary Sparks. I'm the director of the Holt Planetarium in Napier, the sponsor of Starry Nights. The southern spring equinox is on September the 23rd, with the sun moving south across the equator at about 7.20 a.m. Theoretically, this means that everybody in the world will get 12 hours of daytime and 12 hours of nighttime on that day. I say theoretically because things are not exactly perfect in space, and it's always out by a couple of minutes one way or the other. Mercury is well-placed for evening viewing during September. It is at its greatest easterly elongation from the sun on September 14th. Mercury then sets two hours and 20 minutes after the sun. An hour after sunset, it will be 16 degrees up, almost due west. Mercury's magnitude will be 0.1. On September the 9th at around 7 p.m., Mercury will be 6.6 degrees to the left of a very thin crescent moon. On the 21st, the planet will be just less than 1.5 degrees to the left of the first magnitude star, Spica. On the 27th, Mercury is stationary and then starts retracing its path back towards Spica. Venus continues to move up in the western evening sky during September. It sets more than four hours after the sun on the 30th at 11.22 p.m. New Zealand Daylight Time. At that stage, it will be about 45 degrees from the sun. On the 6th, Venus will be just over 1.5 degrees to the right of Spica. Compare that with Mercury's close pass on the 21st. On the 10th, the crescent moon will be just over 4 degrees to the right of Venus. On the 18th, Venus moves into Libra. Mars remains an evening object during September, but only just. On the 1st, the planet was 10 degrees up when the sun set at about 6 p.m. Mars itself then set an hour later. On the 30th, Mars sets only 11 minutes after the Sun. The two are then less than 3 degrees apart. Needless to say, it won't be a good month for observing Mars. Jupiter and Saturn are both in Capricornus at present. The Moon passes them on successive nights during September, Saturn on the 17th and Jupiter on the 18th. In both instances, the planets are just over 3.5 degrees to the left of the Moon, as seen early in the evening. Both planets set well after midnight, making them well-placed for evening viewing. Saturn quivers like thick jelly, its gaseous surface heaving up by a meter every couple of hours. These subtle shakes pull on the giant's rings, whipping up spirals that reveal the planet's interior structure. Now, a study of the ring's spirals has revealed that Saturn, like Jupiter, has a fuzzy core that extends 60% of the way to its surface. The finding, which was recently published in Nature Astronomy, completely changes our understanding not just of Saturn, but of all giant planets. Astronomers have long debated what the guts of Saturn look like. Is the core solid or liquid? Is it all mixed up or is it layered? And how does the planet generate a magnetic field whose axis is almost exactly centered on the planet's spin axis? An unusual thing for planets whose magnetic fields come from churning in the core. 
To investigate these ideas, astronomers have used the observation of the planet's rings from NASA's Cassini spacecraft, which watched the planet for 13 years before diving in for a grand finale in 2017. While the moons tug on the outer rings, it's the planet itself that pulls on the inner rings, shaping the ice particles into spirals. Cassini did not image the ring spirals directly. Instead, astronomers used the spacecraft to look through the rings at a background star. As the star passed behind a given ring, the spacecraft's instruments measured how much the star dimmed to determine how densely packed the ring material was. Using multiple such stellar occultations, astronomers were able to measure spirals in the C-ring. However, astronomers at the time couldn't make sense of all of what they saw. In particular, one of the waves had a very low frequency that they couldn't explain. Now, Christopher Mankiewicz and Jim Fuller, both at Caltech, make the case that this frequency indicates a quiver that penetrated deep into the planet. Such a low-frequency quiver indicates that there's no hard boundary between the core and the envelope around it. Instead, the rocks and ices in the planet's core are smeared out, dissolved into the fluid helium and hydrogen under intense pressure, Mankiewicz explains. From the demands of ring seismology on one hand and expectations from materials physics on the other, a solid core in Saturn is looking very unlikely. Combining this seismic data with Cassini's measurements of local gravitational fields and using computer models of Saturn's interior, the researchers conclude that the core of the planet is 55 times Earth's mass, with rock and ice making up 17 Earth's worth, hydrogen and helium making up the rest. To maintain stability in the face of sloshing, all this material must be layered with the heaviest layers at the bottom. The hydrogen and helium gas in the planet gradually mix with more and more ice and rock as you move toward the planet's centre, Mankiewicz says. It's a bit like parts of Earth's ocean, where the saltiness increases as you get to deeper and deeper levels, creating a stable configuration. In addition to increasing rock and ice salt, there's also a gradual change in the mix of hydrogen and helium. When Mankiewicz and Fuller folded in Cassini's measurements of gravity, they could see that helium must also be more concentrated towards Saturn's center, consistent with previous ideas of helium rain, in which blobs of helium condense out of the hydrogen and settle down toward the core. This is a very interesting result that indeed changes the way we think about Saturn and giant planets in general, says planetary scientist Ravid Helid from the University of Zurich, who was not involved in the study. For example, one planet formation scenario has hydrogen and helium gas glomming onto a rocky core to make planets like Saturn. There's a good astronomical term, eh? Glomming. I love that one. It could be that the rocky core then disintegrated under the pressure, diffusing outward into the current fuzzy core, or it could be there was never a rocky core to begin with. Saturn's layer cake interior also affects its magnetic field. In most planets, the churning electric fluids that create the global magnetic field are in the core. But if Saturn's core is layered, it can't also be churning. The planet's magnetic field would instead have to come from the outer gaseous envelope. This should be investigated further, Helen says. The results reach further than the solar system. When we examine giant planets around other stars, we assume we understand our own system's giants. Helen thinks this new understanding of Saturn's interior will affect how we characterize exoplanets as well. You're listening to Radio Kidnappers, the voice of Hawke's Bay, broadcasting on 104.7 FM and 1431 AM. This program is Starry Nights. None of the asteroids in the main asteroid belt are quite like the two that astronomers have just discovered. 
these extremely red oddballs could mean that planet formation theories are on the right track. Between Mars and Jupiter lies the main asteroid belt, which is mostly comprised of dark, carbon-rich or stony, silicate-rich rocks. But while these types are the most common, they're not the only class of asteroids living in the belt. D-type asteroids, carbon-rich rocks that contain volatiles such as water and carbon dioxide, are sprinkled throughout the main belt, but are more common towards the giant planets, and can even be found caught amongst Jupiter's orbit as Trojans. These D-type asteroids, unlike their cousins, are very red, and until now, they were the reddest objects known to exist in the asteroid belt. Now, a team of astronomers led by Suneo Hasegawa from the Institute of Space and Astronomical Science in Japan has found two even redder objects in the main belt, named 203 Pompeia and 269 Justitia. Objects this red must have journeyed inward from beyond Neptune's orbit, and their presence in the main belt strengthens the case for giant planet migration early in the solar system's history. Hasekawa's team found Pompeia serendipitously while using NASA's Infrared Telescope Facility and the Seoul National University Astronomical Observatory in the Republic of Korea to survey asteroids larger than 100 kilometers. At 110 kilometers wide, the red Pompeia stood out from the crowd and prompted the study of the known asteroid Justitia, which is smaller in size. The analysis of these objects led to the unexpected discovery of their red color. Until Pompeia and Justitia came along, astronomers thought D-type asteroids were the reddest objects in the asteroid belt, but not the reddest in the solar system. Outer solar system objects can beat out the D-types since asteroids' colors tend to redden the further they orbit from the Sun. The presence of complex organic compounds, molecules with lots of carbon atoms in them, like benzene, causes this increased surface redness. For, com- for complex organics to exist on an asteroid, the body must form past certain snow lines, where the molecules exist as ices rather than vapors. The water snow line, where water freezes, is right past the main belt. The carbon dioxide snow line is further out, towards Saturn. Simple carbon-containing compounds such as methane form even further out than that. This increase in distance to the ice boundaries means that the most complex organic organic materials freeze only in the outermost reaches of the solar system. The two newly discovered asteroids resemble two redder classes of objects in the outer solar system, centaurs and trans-Neptunian objects, TNOs, which orbit near the giant planets and out past Neptune, respectively. For Pompeia and Justitia to be so red, they must hail from the solar system's edge. So how did the newly discovered oddballs end up where the astronomers found them? Current planet formation theories state that, after the early stages of planet growth created a compact giant planet lineup, these outer planets began to migrate and spread out, interacting with one another and mixing up asteroids along the way. This stirring implanted objects near Jupiter and beyond into the asteroid belt from time to time. The presence of Pompeia and Justitia in the main asteroid belt implies that distant objects migrated inward, far away from home. The migration of Jupiter and other giant planets must have coaxed these outer solar system bodies into making such a long journey, as predicted. I interpret this discovery as as further very strong circumstantial evidence in support of these current models, says Sean Raymond from the Astrophysics Laboratory of Bordeaux, France, who was not involved in the study. 
If Pompeia and Justitia are truly red wanderers from outside Neptune's orbit, they confirm scientists' current understanding of planet formation. By visiting the main belt, these asteroids offer an opportunity for astronomers to study the conditions of the outer solar system from afar. Well, speaking of lucky finds, a new study offers a tantalizing explanation for how a peculiar cosmic object called WISE AJ153429.75-104303.1 which I will not say again, nicknamed The Accident, came to be. The Accident is a brown dwarf. Though they form like stars, these objects don't have enough mass to kickstart nuclear fusion, the process that starts stars to shine. And while brown dwarfs sometimes defy characterization, astronomers have a good grasp on their general characteristics. Or they did, until they found this one. The accident got its name after being discovered by sheer luck. It slipped past normal searches because it doesn't resemble any of the just over 2,000 brown dwarfs that have been found in our galaxy so far. As brown dwarfs age, they cool off, and their brightness in different wavelengths of light changes. It's not unlike how some metals, when heated, go from bright white to deep red as they cool. The accident confused scientists because it was faint in some key wavelengths, suggesting it was very cold and old, but bright in others, indicating a higher temperature. This object defied all our expectations, said Davy Kirkpatrick, an astrophysicist at IPAC at Caltech. He and his co-authors posit in their new study that the accident might be 10 billion to 13 billion years old, at least double the median age of other known brown dwarfs. That means it would have formed when our galaxy was much younger and had a different chemical makeup. If that's the case, there are likely many more of these ancient brown dwarfs lurking in our galactic neighborhood. The accident was first spotted by NASA's Near-Earth Object Wide Field Infrared Survey Explorer, NEOWISE, launched in 2009 under the moniker WISE. Because brown dwarfs are relatively cool objects, they radiate mostly in infrared light, or wavelengths longer than what the human eye can see. To figure out how the accident could have such seemingly contradictory properties, some suggesting it is very cold, others indicating it is much warmer, the scientists needed more information, so they observed it in additional infrared wavelengths with a ground-based telescope at the W.M. Keck Observatory in Hawaii. But the brown dwarf appeared so faint in those wavelengths, they couldn't detect it at all, apparently confirming their suggestion that it was very cold. They next set out to determine if the dimness resulted from the accident being farther than expected from Earth. But that wasn't the case, according to precise distance measurements by NASA's Hubble and Spitzer Space Telescopes. Having determined the object's distance, about 50 light-years from Earth, the team realized that it is moving fast, about 800,000 kilometers per hour. That's much faster than all other brown dwarfs known to be at this distance from Earth, which means it has probably been careening around the galaxy for a long time, encountering massive objects that accelerate it with their gravity. With a mound of evidence suggesting the accident is extremely old, the researchers propose that its strange properties aren't strange at all, and that they may be a clue to its age. When the Milky Way formed about 13.6 billion years ago, it was composed almost entirely of hydrogen and helium. Other elements, like carbon, formed inside stars. When the most massive stars exploded as supernovae, they scattered the elements throughout the galaxy. 
Methane, composed of hydrogen and carbon, is common in most brown dwarfs that have a temperature similar to the accident. But the accident's light profile suggests it contains very little methane. Like all molecules, methane absorbs specific wavelengths of light. So a methane-rich brown dwarf would be dim in those wavelengths. The accident, by contrast, is bright in those wavelengths, which could indicate low levels of methane. Thus, the light profile of the accident could match that of a very old brown dwarf that formed when the galaxy was still carbon poor. Very little carbon at formation means very little methane in its atmosphere today. It's not a surprise to find a brown dwarf this old, but it is a surprise to find one in our backyard, said Federico Marocco, an astrophysicist at IPAC who led the new observations. We expected that brown dwarfs this old exist, but we also expected them to be incredibly rare. The chance of finding one so close to, a solar to the solar system could be a lucky coincidence, or it tells us that they're more common than we thought. To find more ancient brown dwarfs like the accident, if they're out there, researchers might have to change how they search for these objects. The accident was discovered by citizen scientist Dan Castleton, who was using an online program he built to find brown dwarfs in Neowise data. The sky is full of objects that radiate infrared light. By and large, these objects appear to remain fixed in the sky due to their great distance from Earth. But because brown dwarfs are so faint, they are visible only when they're relatively close to Earth, and that means scientists can observe them moving across the sky over months or years. Neowise maps the entire sky about once every six months. Castleton's program attempted to remove the stationary infrared objects, like distant stars, from the Neowise maps and highlight moving objects that had similar characteristics to known brown dwarfs. He was looking at one such brown dwarf candidate when he spotted another, much fainter object moving quickly across the screen. This would turn out to be YZAJ with a bunch of numbers, which hadn't been highlighted because it did not match the program's profile of a brown dwarf. Castleton caught it by accident. This discovery is telling us that there's more variety in brown dwarf compositions than we've seen so far, said Kirkpatrick. There are likely more weird ones out there, and we need to think about how to look for them. You're listening to Radio Kidnappers, the voice of Hawke's Bay, broadcasting on 104.7 FM and 1431 AM. This program, Starry Nights, is sponsored by the Hawke's Bay Holt Planetarium. The planetarium is located in Napier on Chamber Street on the grounds of Napier Boys High School. Normally, it is open to the public every Sunday evening. However, during the current COVID-19 alert situation, the planetarium will not reopen until we are back down all the way to level one. Once that happens, the planetarium will be open every Sunday evening, 7 p.m. until 9 p.m. Main show starts at 7.15. No bookings are required. You can just show up. The entry fees are $10 for adults, $6 for students and seniors, $25 for a family. If you're interested in more information or perhaps looking at a school booking, 8344-345 or visit the website www.holtplanetarium.org.nz. The planetarium will reopen once the COVID alert levels drop down to level 1. The only known life in the universe lives on a mid-sized rocky planet that orbits a mid-sized yellow star. That would be us. That makes our planet a bit unusual. While small rocky planets are common in the galaxy, yellow stars are not. Small red dwarf stars are much more typical, making up about 75% of the stars in the Milky Way. This is why most of the potentially habitable exoplanets we've discovered orbit red dwarfs. 
all things being even, you would expect then that red dwarfs are the ones most likely to harbor life, but all things aren't equal. Red dwarfs can be much more active than sun-like yellow stars. They can emit enormous solar flares and strong x-rays. And since red dwarfs are much cooler than the sun, planets much or must orbit very close to them to be potentially habitable. All of this paints a grim picture for life on red dwarf planets. A red dwarf would likely strip the atmospheres of close planets and fry any life those worlds might harbor. But a new study finds that things might not be as bad as we thought. The team used data from the Transiting Exoplanet Survey Satellite, TESS. While the primary goal of the TESS mission is to study exoplanets that transit their stars, the TESS survey also contains data on stellar flares. So the team looked for the stellar flares of red dwarfs. From this, they could determine the latitude of solar flares on the star. They found that the distribution of flares on red dwarfs is very different from that of our sun. Solar flares generally occur within the equatorial region. Because of this, the energy and particles from these flares can strike planets in the inner solar system. This most recently happened in 1859 with the Carrington event. But Earth's strong magnetic field does a good job of protecting us. If such an event happened today, it would disrupt our electronic infrastructure, but it wouldn't threaten Earth life as a whole. If Earth orbited the Sun much closer than Mercury, such a flare would be much more dangerous. It's been generally thought that red dwarfs also emit flares from their equatorial regions, but this new study found that the largest flares tend to appear close to the star's poles. The red dwarf flares they observed all appeared above the 60-degree latitude. Their sample size was small, so they couldn't entirely rule this out as a fluke. But if further observations support the trend, that's good news for red dwarf planets. It means that most flares will be directed out of the orbital plane, and potentially habitable worlds will be spared from an apocalypse. When it comes to finding exoplanets, size matters, but so does weight. The larger and heavier the planet, the more likely they will be discovered by the current crop of telescopes. Both the techniques to find exoplanets and the telescopes using those techniques are biased toward larger, heavier planets. So when even the current crop of telescopes manages to find one that is about half the mass of Venus, it is cause for celebration. That is precisely the size of the planet a team from the European Southern Observatory's Very Large Telescope has found orbiting a star called L98-59. Known as L9859b, it is not the smallest exoplanet ever discovered. That title appears to be held by Kepler-37b, which is roughly between the Moon and Mercury in size. But Kepler-37b was discovered using a different technique than L9850b, which is the lightest planet on record so far discovered using the radio velocity technique of exoplanet detection. The radio velocity technique relies on a planet pulling on its star and the star pulling on its planet. So a star wobbles when a world is pulling it in one direction or another. Modern telescopes can detect that wobble for most large, massive planets which have a more significant gravitational impact on their host star. On the other hand, relatively light planets, such as L9859b, don't have as big of a pull on their host star, making them harder to detect using this method. If their small mass is matched by small size, they might also be hard to detect using the transit method, another popular exoplanet detection technique that watches for dips in a star's brightness that a planet could cause when it passes in front of it. This was the method that was used to find Kepler-37b. 
<clears throat> that technique was used previously by TESS to detect three planets in the L9859 system back in 2019. This new radial velocity research found an additional fourth planet. L9859b was actually one of the th- three planets first found by TESS, but it is difficult to determine the masses of exoplanets found via the transiting method. That is where Espresso comes in. Espresso is the Eschel spectrograph for rocky exoplanets and stable spectroscopic observations, an instrument on the VLT. In addition to being a specialist in radial transits, it can estimate water content on an exoplanet. The first three planets of L9859 were good candidates for that practice, as Espresso found that the first two, including L9859b, had some water in the atmospheres while the third had water that amounted to 30% of its mass. Therefore, the third planet is classified as an ocean world. But that isn't the only surprise from Espresso's look at the star system. It also found a fifth planetary candidate, which happens to lie in the star's habitable zone. The researchers could not confirm the planet's existence in their data set, but other scientists will undoubtedly be tuning into the system soon. Even if the planetary candidate turns out not to exist, they will get some observational time on one of the lightest planets known so far. Hopefully soon, they will get plenty of new telescopes to do it with. Right, well that's going to do it for our program this month. Once again, I'd like to thank our sponsors, the Holt Planetarium and Napier. Remember, the planetarium is currently closed with the, with the COVID-19 alert levels and will reopen once the COVID-19 alert levels drop down to one. So when that happens, do come and visit us once again. My name is Gary Sparks, and thank you once again for listening to Starry Nights. This show was produced by and first broadcast on Radio Kidnappers, Hawke's Bay's community access radio station. Thanks to New Zealand On Air for enabling us to put Hawke's Bay voices on air.